0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
1: In this episode, author Michael Port returns to the show to share lessons learned from a nine-year acting career and how we perform our best in high-stakes situations. Michael, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
5: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, you and I go way back. I mean, we had you here uh, back when the show was called Blogcast FM twice, actually. And, you know, I wanted to have you back because I know you have a new book out. But uh, really, what I wanted to do this time, hopefully, was to do a deeper dive into parts of your story that we've never gotten to hear or ideally that you've never told on on other shows. So on on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background and how that has led you to everything you're up to, this new book and all the work that you're doing?
5: Sure. I imagine most people start with their career, where they started professionally, but I'm going to go back farther than that. I was, uh, still am, dyslexic. And I was in a very academically rigorous private school growing up. And I always felt kind of stupid, which is not a great feeling to have when your friends are sitting there memorizing uh, for tests just by looking at the pages in a textbook and I can barely even understand the notes that I wrote and at the same time I was also a man child you know how there's always one kid who's mm-hmm. shaving before everybody else I had to bring my birth certificate to Little League games because they thought that I was older and I shouldn't be on the team and when I when I look at those two things they really influenced uh, my development and initially I thought that they influenced me negatively They actually, at least the dyslexia, turned out to be a real advantage for me. And I'll explain why in a minute. But what those two things did for me when I was younger is it it got me focused on getting approval rather than going for results. And I think that's one of the things that led me towards acting, which was my first career. And I, I acted in college. And then I went to the graduate acting program at NYU and I got a master's in acting. And then I went out and worked professionally for a number of years. And I was on shows like Sex and the City and Third Watch, All My Children, Law and Order, 100 Center Street. Uh, And I was in films like The Pelican Brief, Down to Earth, The Believer. And I did a lot of voiceovers for companies like AT&T, Coors Beer, Braun, Pizza Hut, MTV, and others. And... I worked for a number of years, but then I decided to leave the business because I wasn't getting as much approval as I wanted. Think about that. Mm. I wasn't getting as many jobs as I wanted. I was getting rejected more often than I felt comfortable with. Now, most people don't feel comfortable with rejection, but, but in order to be a successful actor, unless you just hit it right away because you're in the right place at the right time, you need to be able to wait and need to be able to take a lot of rejection over and over and over again. And at that time, I think I was too immature. I was too immature to wait. I wanted what I wanted fast. So I left and I went into business and I talked my way into a job in the fitness industry on the business side for which I was completely unqualified. Now, I told them I was. I said, listen, I don't have any of the qualifications that you think you need for this position, but here's why I think you should consider me. And eventually I got the job and I worked my way up from there. And about six years later I left and I started my own consultancy and then I started writing and that was 13 plus years ago. And uh, here we are today, six books later, and I've gone back to my roots as a performer with the book steal the show. And the thing that actually has been an advantage for me now is twofold. One so I guess it can't be a thing that's twofold. But there are two things. One, the fact that I'm dyslexic. The, the dyslexia requires that I reorganize information that is presented to me in a way that's easier to consume. And most information that's out there, you get piecemeal. A bit here, a bit there, a bit everywhere. And that doesn't work very well for me. So I have to organize it in a very strategic structured way in order to process it. And what people say about my books that they like the most is how easy it is to understand concepts that before seemed really broad or disparate from others. And, and it's the organization of all of these different ideas into a whole that has been really helpful for my readers. And I attribute that to the fact that I was dyslexic. And I still can't spell to save my life, but, but nonetheless, I'm able to produce uh, books that are filled with words because now, A, I have something to say, but B, because I can organize the information in a way that help people. And then, and then the other thing that has helped now is I've been, I've been able to reflect back on my earlier years and looking for approval so often, and I've been able to, to flip that. So now I focus on results rather than approval. And that is required that I, that I let go some of the voices of judgment in my head and not care so much about what people in the cheap seats are saying, you know, the folks that they need to push people down to lift themselves up. Uh, I'm less concerned about them because you can be a critic or a performer, but I don't think you can be both. So I don't want to care about what the critics say. I don't want to criticize myself. I don't want to criticize anybody else. I just want to perform and I want to produce results for me and for the people that I serve. And because I quit acting, which is one of my regrets, I'm not going back to it, but it is one of my regrets. I will not quit something that I love now, no matter what, it will not happen. And so that's the second thing that really has influenced the way I work now, um, you know, that I, that I, upon reflection realized was something that got in my way when I was younger.
1: Hmm. Okay. So there's a ton of stuff here that, um, yeah, I want to do a deeper dive into. But the first one really is looking at this idea of taking something that is a disadvantage and turning it into an advantage. Uh, I mean, you did that with dyslexia. I'm curious how people do that in their own lives, regardless of what the disadvantage is.
5: Hmm. So there are some other things that were difficult for me and still are very difficult for me because of the dyslexia. One of them is I cannot take notes and listen at the same time because my my writing can't keep up with what the other person is saying. I write slower. And as a result, if I try, within a few minutes, I'm already lost. So what I had to do over the years was be the kind of person that others would be willing to help. And I think, th- I think that, that, that was, a, it was a big realization for me that I was doing that. I wasn't even sure. That, I didn't even know that I was doing it younger when I was younger because I wasn't intentional about it. But then when I was older, I realized, wow, that's influenced the way that I interact with people. Because I think if you want to overcome something that has held you back in the past, it's really helpful to have other people who are willing to help you do that. And so how do you behave? How do you act as a person in such a way that others are willing to help you? And once again, you can't focus on approval. You can't just go for approval from these people. You need to figure out a way to produce results for these people. And then additionally, the, the dyslexia that I had, it actually helped me become a better verbal communicator because I didn't like writing and it wasn't super comfortable, but I had to communicate. So that helped me become a better verbal communicator. And then lastly, I'm also good at getting other people to do my work for me. <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I say it you know, with, uh, with my tongue in my cheek, of course, but that's what entrepreneurship is in part about. It's not getting out of the things you need to do. It's about organizing people around big ideas and lots of work and getting it done. And so when I look at some of my colleagues who uh, write books and speak, uh, many of them didn't build businesses around it. They just built practices around it, which is great, but they have to do everything themselves. And I focused very early on on building a business around it because there's so many things I have trouble doing, so many things. And I'm able to identify the people that are really good at the things that I can't do and figuring out a way to get to work with them. And in the early days, it was collaboration, 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 collaboration. And then now it's collaboration and also I can hire people. And that's a nice feeling too. Uh, So you work together. But the reflection is important. It's the difference between self-expression and self-understanding. Self-expression is what people think performance is all about. And there's certainly an element to it. But Self-expression is is often uh, about emoting. It's often about sharing just how you feel all the time. Or, how you, or what you think all the time and not always in the right uh, situations or right environment. But self-understanding, well, to me, that's real performance because if you want to perform, you need to know how to adjust your style of behavior, to adjust your way of behavior, your way of being, rather. And if you can adjust your, your style of behavior and your way of being in different situations so you can play the right role, in every situation, well, then you often get to be fully self-expressed in ways that other people enjoy. But it's based on self-understanding. So you got to know, well, how do I fit into this environment here? And what parts of my personality should I amplify? And which parts of my personality should I turn the volume down on? I explore this extensively in Steal the Show because this idea of playing roles mm-hmm. is really, really important to succeeding during all the high-stakes situations of our life. Because if we think about it, our life is, is often a series of high-stakes situations. And how we perform during those high-stakes situations often determines the quality of our life. And Lee Strasberg, who was one of the most famous acting teachers... He said that the actor's job is in part to consistently create reality and then express that reality. And that's what we do every day with the choices we make. We're creating our reality. We're expressing that reality. Everything we do tells the world something about us. Everything we say tells the world something about us. And how intentional can we be with respect to what we do and what we say and be completely authentic at the same time? It's the balance of those two things, I think.
1: Hmm. Well, I definitely want to do a, a deep dive into the concepts in, in the book, but you know, one of the other things I want to spend a little bit t- of time talking about is your acting career. Sure. Uh, you're at it for a long time, even though you say you didn't have the maturity to stick it out and that you quit. And I'm really interested in understanding, you know, what you learned about success, what you learned about grit, what you learned about persistence and mm-hmm. also, you know, you mentioned you worked on shows like Sex in the City, mm-hmm. uh, you know, movies like The Pelican Grief. So you've sort of had a front row seat to true masters of the craft of performance that most mm-hmm. of us will never have a view into. Sure. And I'm curious what you learned about mastery of craft from those types of people. So a lot of questions in one.
5: Yeah, well, let me make it. Let me note those down because I want to answer all of them for you.
1: Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, time. Uh, yes.
5: Um, Pelican Brief. And Flickr. Okay. So let's start with Felicity. Um, And and then we'll go to the Pelican Brief, and then we'll go to Alec Baldwin. Okay. Okay. Alec Baldwin. So you see how I set that up and built some anticipation?
1: Yeah, exactly. I was wondering, what I'm like, wait a minute, what do those have to do with my questions?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I actually had to write these things down and see how it took me a little longer. Most Uh people could talk and write them down, but I had to say, okay, hold on, let me write them down. And even though... I, I, my notes were like chicken scratch. I had to write them a second time to make sure I didn't forget what it was. So let's start with Felicity. Now, Felicity Huffman is a very well-known actress. Uh, she was the lead in Transamerica. Uh, she was the, one of the leads in American Crime, which is a series that was recently on, very intense series. She was one of the stars of Desperate Housewives. And she's been working since she was 17 years old and is wonderful. And her people call her Flicka. That's her nickname. And I was 21 years old when I went up to the Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts to be a non equity actor, which means I played the little roles in the equity shows. And in equity shows, there are some roles that are allowed to be given to non equity actors. And so I wasn't paid to be there. I was still in college, but I got to be in these cool shows with people like Flicka and James Whitmore. Uh, oh, let me write that down. I got another one, another James Whitmore one. Okay, so, so I got to know her and she's about eight years older than I am and we went out for drinks and I said, oh, let me go buy the beers. And she said, no, I'll get them. I said, oh, I'll get them. She said, Michael, I'll get them. She's intense. I said, okay, um, okay, fine. And she said, L- let me tell you two things. Number one, whoever's working buys. That's the way it is in this business. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Whoever's working buys. Because, you know, if we were both actors, maybe I'm doing a show and you're, you know, uh, auditioning. And then uh, six months later, you're doing a film and I'm auditioning. So money goes up and down when you're in the business and whoever's working is supposed to buy. And she said, number two, she goes, this might seem like a non sequitur, but number two, friends get friends work. I thought, okay, fine. And I put it out of my head. I didn't really think about that because I was 21 years old. What did I know about, you know, getting work? Really? But years later, it came back to me, and I thought, wow, nothing could be farther, nothing could be truer. When I look at the speaking industry, friends get friends' work. If you give a keynote somewhere, and you kill it, and then the keynote speaker is looking for, the meeting organizer, the meeting planner is looking for somebody else, and they say, hey, who do you think I should bring in? Because you killed it last year, because they're going to assume whoever you suggest is going to be good because you're good. So- Friends get friends work, and that's why our relationships are more important than almost anything else. Now, we want to be best in class. Our skill has to be top notch, um, and we need to do the things we say we're going to do. If all of those are in place, then our friends are the people that make the difference in our lives, because I can look look back at almost all of the successful high stakes moments of my life, and I can attribute them uh, in large part to other people. So that's, that's number one. Now, in terms of making commitments and fulfilling them, I, I, I was in a play with James Whitmore, who was an extraordinary actor. If, if people aren't familiar with his name, he, was, he played the librarian in the Shawshank Redemption, who eventually took his own life, mm. and not in real life, in the, in the film. And he's wonderful. And he was the lead in this show. And there were about 50 people in the show, and I had a small part. And I was in the what we, you'd call the ensemble of the show, and Or the chorus, rather, of the show. But there was one scene where we're all on stage with him at the same time. And I, I never really thought he knew me from a hole in the wall. But I missed that scene in one show. I missed my entrance. And I thought, oh, well, no one's going to notice because really, it doesn't really matter that I'm not there. In fact, I don't really do anything there. I'm just part of the crowd. So it's really no big deal. I'll get away with this. Well, next thing you know, the stage manager comes to me after the performance and says, Mr. Whitmore would like to see you in his dressing room. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so fucked. Like <laughs> This is not going to be good. So I knocked on his door and he said, oh, please come in. And I said, hi, Mr. Whitmore. He said, um, Michael. And at first, I was shocked that he knew my name. He said, I, I noticed uh, in scene six uh, that you weren't there. What happened? And I said, oh, I missed my... Uh, entrance and he said why i said honestly i was talking to a girl backstage he said that's uh, great that's part of the theater but don't ever miss your entrance again because if you've committed to being there you need to fulfill that commitment and i never forgot that and that's a really big very big important uh, philosophy that i follow you make commitments and fulfill them uh, that's your reputation right there i mean that's how you build your reputation if you make commitments and don't fulfill them well there goes your reputation so i learned that from james whitmore I learned that friends get friends' work from, from Felicity Huffman and that whoever's working buys beers. And then um, when I was in the Pelican Brief, this was the first film I was ever in. It was 19, mm, I graduated from college in 1980, uh, 93, 93, So it was 1993, it was the summer, and I just finished Tulane and I was about to go home to go to graduate school at NYU. But the Pelican Brief was shooting there. So I said, I'm gonna stay here and audition. Maybe I'll get a part. This would be really, really cool. It'd be my first thing ever. So I auditioned, and then I got called back and I got to go have a meeting with Alan J. Pakula, who was the director in his trailer. And he said to me, You know, you're a young Robert De Niro. And I knew he was just being really nice, but it felt great anyway. And I'm thinking, this is really easy. This is my first audition for a movie. And I got a part. And I was a law student in a class. And When I was in my little honey wagon, it's a, where it's a, that's a small trailer. So if you have a, if you have a a truck, you have like an 18 wheel truck and there will be six trailers in that truck uh, for the small uh, role, the actors are playing small roles as opposed to a big uh, trailer that, you know, uh, Jessica, uh, Julia Roberts would have. So the, the, one of the wardrobe um, personnel came and knocked on my door and she brought me some shirts to try. And I was just trying them on at the top of the steps. And I was taking my, my shirt on and off and putting those on. So I didn't have a shirt on and I was just standing out there. And there was a huge crowd, massive crowd behind these barricades because they all wanted to get a glimpse of, of um, Julia Roberts. This was after Pretty Woman. And all of a sudden, two women, they break through the barrier, they run up to me and they say, oh, my God, oh, my God, we, we, you, we know who you are. We love you. Can we have your autograph? And I'm thinking, there's no way they know who I am because I've never done anything. And then I looked at them and I realized they were actually administrators from the school. And I would see them every once in a while when I was in the administrative office. But they placed—they couldn't place me as a student because they saw me up there as an actor. And they had this idea that I was important because I was an actor who was Standing outside a trailer on the movie with Julia Roberts, and it demonstrated to me that you know what status is ridiculous, because it's all manufactured. It's all made up in the minds of people. So I'm not going to be afraid of people who have high status. I'm not going to think that they're better than me or cooler than me or should have an opportunity that I don't have, or somehow are distant from me. And that's been very helpful over the years as well, because you know I I you know if someone is is if, if I met um, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, he's sold a lot more books than me. So he's a higher status as an author. I'm not going to be intimidated in any way, shape or form. It's just not going to happen because I realize that the idea of status is still ridiculous. Even if somebody is more accomplished than you, it doesn't mean that they are better than you. It doesn't mean that they're different from you. We are more similar than we are different. And I think that's important for us to remember that we're more similar than we are different. And then last but not least, I learned a lot about timing from Alec Baldwin. And Alec Baldwin, uh, I, I thought I was more of a young Alec Baldwin than, uh, than a Robert De Niro. When my first went and met my agents, they always ask, well, who do you think you're like? Because they're trying to place you so they can you know, tell the cast directors, oh, he's a young Alec Baldwin. He's a young this, he's a young that. And when they said, who are you, who are you like? I'm like, like myself. What do you mean? And they said, no, like what other actors? I'm like, I don't know, young Alec Baldwin. He said, okay, fine. So let's go with that. But I met Alec while I was in graduate school. And Alec was at the graduate program for a meeting uh, about the Schubert Theater. And I was with about six people in the room. And we were working on a project together. And I was getting the timing. I had the room at that moment. So when you have the timing, your jokes are funnier. And what you say has greater impact but people have to give you the timing or you take it from them, but they allow you to have it. And this is what comedians are brilliant at doing. And I realized how important this timing was and how it is given and taken when Alec walked in the room. Because when Alec walked in the room, all of the attention went right off of me to him. And I no longer had the timing, he did. Because he was more famous than I was. So he was given the timing. That's that's why if somebody is well-known, even say in our industry, if they're very well-known and they're at a dinner table with people who aren't as well-known, who are just moving up in the industry, that person who's more well-known is given the timing. They're given the table, as it were. And that allows them to control the timing. And if you can control timing, then your jokes are funnier. What you say often has more impact. Now, of course, you have to have a good sense of timing yourself, but that can be developed if you get the timing. So you also have to learn how to take the
2: timing in a room uh, if you need it, if you want it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting uh, a series of anecdotes to, to answer the question. So I have another question. And what, around I
5: this love, what I love about this is these are not things that I talk about. Typically, this is the greatest. This is the greatest part of this podcast is that I, I haven't I haven't told those stories or organized them in that way. I haven't thought about James Whitmore in <laughs> 25 years. So,
1: That's awesome. Well, One of the things that you talked about was this idea of quitting, right? I mean, we talked about, you know, sort of mastery, timing, all those other things. I mean, some really interesting lessons in those stories. Uh, But I mean, ultimately you did quit. And so there's some things that I want to know about. One is in all of this, I mean, from where you started to where you're at now, were there any sort of rock bottom, just dark night of the soul, no hope for the future moments and If so, how did you navigate out of them? And how in our own lives do we develop this capacity not to quit things that we love?
5: Hmm. Well, the first one was when I decided to quit acting. I got my car towed. And in New York City, it's very expensive to get your car out of the impound lot. I felt like an idiot because I put it in a place where it shouldn't have been. And that's why it got towed. So it was my fault to begin with, but I didn't have the money to get the car out of the pound. And I had to call my parents to come give me money to get the car. And I remember when they picked me up, I broke down and I cried and I was just so upset that I felt like, uh, if if I can't get my car out of the pound, what kind, what, 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 what the hell am I doing? I felt worthless in a sense, you know, it was a horrible feeling. And that's, that's one of the things that that pushed me to leave acting. That was a pretty dark place. It was the first dark place professionally that I was in. And, and then I quit. Now, would I handle it differently today? I think I would. The thing that is, was the darkest, darkest place for me was about four years ago. Three, Yeah, about four years ago. I historically have had trouble with food And this is not something that I talk about in general uh, also. I have spoken about it in a few of my speeches uh, from time to time when I think it's relevant to the audience, but but it's not something that I talk about often, but I'll talk about it now, even though it still makes me a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but generally people find it helpful because many of us go through these kinds of things. I had trouble with food and I would overeat. And now I did it when I was younger and sometimes I put on a couple extra pounds, but then I'd play sports and it would come off, but... It was never a big problem when I was younger. I just tended to have a really big appetite. But then as I got into my 30s, middle 30s or so, I started to binge eat. When I was depressed or sad about something or like my bank account was low or I just didn't feel good about the work that I was doing, I would overeat. Like I'd eat a whole whole bag of Oreos and then a whole container of ice cream. And it was pretty uncomfortable. And the the more you do it, the worse you feel about yourself because you you can't stop. It's just like alcohol. It's hard for people to imagine if they've never had any kind of addiction, uh, but it is just like an addiction, especially because everybody eats. You, You have to eat. And people who eat until they're full and then they stop, it's hard for them to imagine. And now imagine trying to quit drinking if you're an alcoholic, but having to drink three times a day. Usually you abstain completely when you have a problem with a particular substance, but you can't do that with food. So what I had to do is, is constrain myself so that I don't eat certain kinds of foods, which could be triggers. And it's something that I still have to stay vigilant about all the time. But the darkest, darkest days were when I couldn't stop that kind of eating. And I was putting on a lot of weight and I, I weigh right now about 170 pounds, which is my normal weight. And I've been here for, you know, about, you know, four years, but I was up to, I got up to about 230 pounds at my worst. And I didn't want to go out and give speeches and I didn't want to do videos. And all of those were affecting my career. You know, I'm in a personality driven, uh, you know, personal, personal brand driven business. And I didn't feel like myself. So I didn't want to go out in the world uh, and show up that way, but the truth is that was me, and that was part of me, and uh, that was a part of me that still lives inside me, and and it's not a part that I want to amplify. Meaning, I don't want to allow myself uh, to overeat. That's not the life I want to live. So I have to work every day not to do it. And so that that's been the darkest part of my life overall, uh, and uh, and I've been working you know for years now uh, on on overcoming that. And again, as I said, it's an, it's an everyday thing. It's not a, oh, I fixed it in a week with a, a, a special morning ritual and now I'm done. It, it, that's not how it works. Hmm.
1: Well, what about the, the the piece on quitting? I mean, do you think that some people are just inherently designed not to quit? Or do you think that that capacity uh, not to quit the things we love uh, is something that can be learned or, or developed? I think, I
5: really do think it can be learned. And I'm not just, you know, I'm not saying that because uh, I'm just, optimistic or I want to, you know, pump people up. I really believe that it can be learned. And I think sometimes it's learned over time as you get older and you get your desires get stronger than your fears and you are more committed to the outcomes that you're going for. So for example, historically, I was not a good saver. I'd spend the money I make. So I make a lot of money and then I'd spend and go, oh, i just make more money. I can always make more money. That's what the entrepreneur says. That's no problem. I didn't really save for the future when I was younger in the way that I should have. But when, you know, now I have, I have a family. I have um, my son from my first marriage and two beautiful children from um, uh, their Amy's kids. And I have a lot of responsibilities and I have big plans for what we're going to do in the future. So I, I, I save in very different ways now. And my focus is very different. I won't give up on that. And and, and you might not, might not seem directly related to this idea of quitting, but I would give up trying to figure out like, wait, what does this universal index policy really mean? Because I couldn't get through a lot of the numbers in part because of my dyslexia. Or I'd say like, you know what, I'll just give it to this financial advisor. And, and I'm sure he, you know, he's doing the right thing. Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> we won't get into that. But you know, I would quit in a sense. I would quit going after the information that I needed to produce what I wanted for my family long-term, but I won't do that anymore. Even if it's a struggle, even if it's frustrating, I spent an, about two hours today and I, I use the universal life index policies as an example, because I was going through these two different policies and I, I was, I was going through detail by detail by detail and identifying the things that were wrong about them and that they needed to go and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your questions, but, but yeah, I do think it can be learned and I won't quit now. I just won't do it. It's just not going to happen. Now that's different than quitting something that doesn't work. Like if we have a program that we find becomes, uh, it is not profitable anymore, or we decide we're going in a different direction. Whoa. We, we cut that. That's different than quitting something that you know is great for you, that you want to do that means something. Those two things are very different.
1: Why do you think certain people quit when it gets really hard?
5: I think sometimes because of the fear of not getting it, it's just this idea that if I work this hard and I don't get it, that's going to really suck. Mm-hmm. And also, if I want it that much and I really go for it and I don't get it, what does that say about me? Think about this. Yeah. I, I remember when I was an actor, I remember one specific instance where I was testing for the lead in Kiss the Girls. Remember that movie?
1: Yep, with yeah. Morgan Freeman. I was te-
5: exactly. I was testing for the cop who ends up being the killer. And I did not work, I did not prepare as much on that audition as I should have. I w- it was six auditions. It was a whole slew. But by the time I got to that final round, and I didn't do great. I really didn't. I did not do that well. And I lost that opportunity. And I think the reason I didn't do that well is because then if I didn't get it afterwards, I could say, yeah, well, I just... I wasn't really prepared for it. You know, it wasn't, I didn't have the time to prepare or whatever it was. That's a, that's a type of quitting. That's a type of quitting. Saying, well, I didn't have the time to do it or, you know, that's a type of quitting, but it makes it easier to save face in a way, because if I admitted how much I wanted it, if I admitted how much I cared and I didn't get it, what does that say about me? What does it say about my skills? So I think that's another reason that we may quit. Hmm.
1: That actually makes a perfect setup to talk about uh, another question and and another concept that you brought up, this idea of approval versus results.
5: Mm
1: -hmm. We live in a world that I think is to a fault driven by approval Mm -hmm. more than results, uh, largely because our presence is so public. And one, I want to hear what you say about that. And two, I want to hear how you start to shift from being approval driven to being results driven.
5: Yeah, so I agree with you entirely. Uh, we live in a very approval-driven culture, and of course, social media doesn't help us in any way, shape, or form.
1: No, online
5: dating doesn't help us in any way, shape, or form with these, with this, uh, with this issue that we have. So, and it's also part of the human condition, I suppose. I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist, but I imagine uh, getting approval uh, helps you keeps you in the pack uh, so that, you know, you can continue to evolve. Uh, you survive if you get approval, but just getting approval, uh, may not allow you to do the things that you really want to do. So for example, um, I knew someone who worked in the, uh, she was an artist, a designer, and uh, she was always on her own, very free, uh, didn't make a lot of money, but made some cool stuff. And she started dating this guy, good guy, liked each other, and then she decided she wanted to change, and she wanted to go work in a company where she could make a lot more money and, and feel like she was having more impact. And it, the corporate culture was not familiar to her, but she was really willing to go out and give it a shot. Well, the guy didn't like it. He wasn't comfortable with her playing that other role, playing a different role. And she, she dumped him. She should have. It was, it was exactly the right move for her. But sometimes we aren't willing to take the risks that might push people away from us because we will no longer get their approval, even if it's something that we want. And that's where it becomes certainly problematic. But I think it's really quite extraordinary that she said, you know what? I'm, I, I want what I want more than I want to try to change to be who you want me to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the ways that we overcome this need for approval. We get clearer on what we want to create. And we have more desire for that than we do the need to make other people happy about our choices.
2: Hmm.
5: And it's, it's, it's compounding, I think, in a sense, because the more successful you get, often the more confident you feel which then gives you the courage to stand in your own voice or to speak from your own voice and not care so much about what other people think and tell people if you don't want to get on this, you know, on this bandwagon, that's perfectly fine, but I'm not going to listen to your naysaying. And it just helps. It certainly helps. I think being comfortable with yourself with, uh, with while getting co- confident makes a big difference because Or getting successful makes a big difference because we've all seen people who've gotten very successful but still struggled with coming to terms with who they are Mm -hmm. and end up sabotaging their success uh, either professionally or you know you've seen certainly seen a lot of people who have you know have even taken their own lives because they were so uncomfortable with who they were and they were playing a role that they weren't comfortable in even though this role was more successful. So it's a balance between these two things. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. It makes me think back to, you know, one of the more challenging periods of my life post, you know, middle, I think towards the end of 2014, where I totally felt exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like sort of this epic sort of what appeared to be meteoric rise followed by a, you know, what seemed like a torrential downfall.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. You know, many of us, whether or not we've accomplished the things that we set out to accomplish uh, or are still struggling to find our way, many of us feel like a fraud. Mm-hmm. And we question ourselves. We say, well, who am I to say this thing? What am I, you know, what am I going to say that's any different than anybody else has already said? Um, you know, do I know enough? Am I enough? Do I have enough to do these things? And. And that kind of shame is definitely the, the killer of, of, uh, of many dreams. Mm. But I don't think you need to be different to make a difference. I really don't. I don't think you need to be different to make a difference. I think that we often try so hard to come up with our own unique selling proposition. And I mean this as an individual, not when we're, cre- we're selling a new type of phone or something. But we we think we need to be different. We try to come up with well, what's going to make me different than everybody else? What what can I do different? How can I do my hair that's different than everybody else? How can I? But when we when we look at it from the external, and and we look at it from the outside, then aren't we aren't we playing at something? As opposed to being more ourself by being more ourself by be different. But I guess I should say being different by being ourself. Because there's nothing to compare to. There's no relative. There's no, well, this is the benchmark and this is what makes you different. That's not how the world works. We're all individuals. And that's what I love about people. I see the individual in each person. That's what I love about performance and and coaching people around performance because each individual has their own style. So, how can we be different if there's no benchmark all we can be is ourselves and if we are then we're more comfortable with ourselves which then of course allows us to go after what we want with uh, more conviction make commitments fulfill them etc cetera, etc cetera. so they all roll together you know it's, uh, it's not one thing on its own but they all roll together mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's do this. Uh, let's get into the concepts of, of Steele's show. But where I want to take this conversation is to talk about implementing the principles in high stakes situations, because you've mentioned that so many times. Uh, to me, it sounds like this is about a lot more than performance or public speaking.
5: It is. And that was my goal with the book, because you know I can write a tour de force on public speaking, and I believe I did. The second half of the book is all about technique as it relates to public speaking, but the first two parts. So the third part is the, is a half of the book. And the first two parts is the first half of the book, the the first part is about the mindset of a performer. And the second part are a dive into six performance principles, because these principles are what are going to help you win the day during those high stakes situations. So, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll give the six and then I'll tell them, say them twice so people can write them down if they want. Number one, have a clear objective. Number two, act as if. Number three, raise the stakes. Number four, say yes and. Number five, be in the moment. And number six, choose early and often. So number one, have a clear objective. Number two, act as if. Number three, raise the stakes. Number four, say yes and. Number five, be in the moment. And number six, choose early and often. And these are the principles that help you during those high stakes situations. For example, acting as if is a very powerful acting concept. You act as if you are this person in this situation. That's what the actor does. Obviously, if I'm gonna play a mafioso, I'm not a mafioso, but I'm gonna act as if I was in that situation, and then I'm going to experience the feelings that that person has and the thoughts that that person has in that situation. And if we allow ourselves to step out of our own disclosive space, that's the small space around us, and act as if we are confident, act as if we are comfortable, act as if we are calm, act as if we are already the confident manager act as if we already have the job. We will eventually, smoothly, roll into those roles. And so what it does is it sets you up for a more powerful position going in. Another principle that's so incredibly important is Saying yes, and it's a technique from improv. It's a really fa- fundamental improvisational technique. You know, if you and I are doing a scene and uh, you run in and say, Oh my God, I broke my leg, it, I'm, I'm in so much pain. And I say, No, nah, you didn't, you're fine. And then I just go back to whatever I was doing. It's over, it's done. Nothing happened. But if you walk in and say, Oh my God, I broke my leg, I'm in so much pain. And I say, Yes, and I say, Yes. And your hair looks fabulous. Did you do something different? Well, now we have somewhere to go. Because you can say, yeah, I was at the hair salon. I'm in the chair. I was getting my hair done. I really like the new cut. And the chemicals were just so much that I passed out, fell into the ground, broke my leg, etc. Now we have somewhere to go. Now, that's not the best improv scene in the world. But just as a quick example. So are you the kind of person that plays the devil's advocate? Because if you are, you're generally not going to be invited to a lot of meetings. And, and I, I will never hire the person in, that tells me in an interview that they play the devil's advocate because that person just pokes holes. They don't want to fill them. They just poke holes. I don't want the devil in my meetings. I want the person who says, yes, I really get what you're saying. And what about this too? Or yes, I really get what you're saying. And have we thought about this? Because you're building on what came before you because anybody can tear something down. Anyone can do that. That's easy. That's what social media seems to all be about. But the question is, can you build something better in its place? Or can you build something different in its place? Because we don't always have to do better than what came before us, because sometimes some of the methodology out there works quite well. But you know what? You have a different way of looking at it, another perspective. We'll build that. Don't compete it. Don't compare it against or compete against the other thing. Just make something new that will resonate with the people that you're meant to serve. And then being in the moment is so incredibly important during a high-stakes situation, because if you're obsessing on the mistake you just made, you're going to start making more and more mistakes. If you are obsessing on what's about to happen, and you're running through the script of what you're going to say in a minute or two, then you're going to mess something up in that moment. So the reason I focus on improvisational uh, skills in Steal the Show is because if you have a good really strong ability to improvise in the moment if you understand the principles behind improvisation and the techniques that you can use then you can stay in the moment and be much more present to what is actually happening and if you want to do well in a high-stakes situation you need to be in the moment and that's really really important and so i imagine you you've been doing these interviews for years now and i imagine you have guests who you feel like you know what they're really in the moment they're actually listening to me and doing their best to answer the questions they may not get there the first time. They may have to get there the second time, but they're, they're trying to answer them honestly. Then you have guests who you can tell are thinking about what they're going to say next, or they're trying to fix something that they said before. And what happens is you have a little bit of a
1: disconnect in the interview. Have you had those different types of situations? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I've also called those interviews quits in the middle of them sometimes. <laughs> there you go.
5: There you go. So, uh, so th- that's another technique. The choose early and often is very powerful because, you know, the choices we make, they signal to other people who we are, what we believe in, the choices we make. And if we don't make choices that are strong, well, I don't think we, we produce very much. If we make choices that are weak, that are really easy, then the stakes are generally very low. Now, if we don't make any choices at all, definitely nothing happens. You know, that's perseveration or procrastination. That's really difficult. But if we make choices early and often, well, then we get a little farther, a little more quickly. Now, choosing early and often is different than choosing quickly or hastily. I recently hired a new assistant and... I really wanted to get the right person this time. You know, you never know, but you want to do your best. So I brought in, I started looking for the person before I knew I needed them. So I spent a long time working on the process because I chose early to bring somebody in before it became uh, a situation where I had to get them right away because I was in the weeds. And then I wouldn't have the time to really work to find the ideal candidate. So, choosing early to bring them on is very different than just choosing quickly. I was able to take my time in who I chose because I chose early to bring them on. So you get where you want to go quickly. And if what you're doing works, you carry on. If not, you scrap it and you make a better choice. And people who make strong choices, they're compelling, they're confident, they're commanding very often.
1: Hmm. Wow. Well, Michael, I mean, you've packed this conversation with a lot of really insightful nuggets, uh, This has been really, really interesting.
5: Thank you so much. I really, I love what you're doing with this show. It's unique. It's really quintessentially you. And I think that's what's brilliant about it. I don't think you changed the format of your show. (laughs) No, no, I'm saying this. No, I'm saying this because it represents what we've been talking about. I don't think you changed the format of your show because, well, let's see, how can we be different than the marketplace? And, you know, I don't think that's what you did. I think you just got clear on how you like to do this. Yeah. And you went out and did it. And you said, look, I don't know if this is, you know, going to resonate with people the way the show resonated before. And I'm sure there's some people who said, I wish you do it the way you did it before, you know, but the majority of people clearly love it. And it's, you know, it's one of the most popular shows. So it's doing brilliantly. And that's an example of, you know, of making choices, of raising the stakes, of saying yes, of being in the moment, having a clear objective. And that all of these principles are, present, uh, in the, you know, in the work that you do. And I think it's really quite beautiful.
1: Hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate that. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish mm-hmm. all our interviews, uh, mm-hmm. at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
5: Hmm. I would say how they treat other people, how they treat other people, I think it's, it's, the, it's the way we think about people more than almost anything else, how they treat us. So do they treat us kindly, with grace? Do they treat us harshly? Are they controlling? Do they nitpick? Do they feel they know better? Or are they supportive? Are they warm? Do they let you be who you want to be, even if It conflicts with their agenda. So I think think that may be it. It's at least the first thing that came to mind for me. But I I think that's one of the ways that we think about people.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, this has been phenomenal. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story, your journey, and all your insights with our listeners.
5: Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to be here.
1: Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
3: Hold up?